Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Haunted Houses. Hold on a sec. I heard a noise behind that door. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Let's Potato Chips. Crisp and not as greasy as you think. Let's are a definite buy. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I'm Todd. And this is a film podcast where we analyze movies to death and try to breathe new life into them. I think it's kind of the uh, the somewhat goal, the semi-goal. Um, just the idea, I think, of finding new things to look at in the film can be uh, fun and make you want to re-watch it. I know sometimes uh, we've covered a thing or even something that we haven't covered where I've watched something for a second time. I'm like... I've never seen this before, and now I want to watch it again. Those are always, you know, fun experiences, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everybody has their own opinions on movies, you know, and as much as we think that we know exactly what was meant by them, not always, you know, um, and it's always good to hear another perspective on uh, on things like this. So uh, anyway, uh, what are we doing today? Oh, man, we're doing Moonlight. Yes, sir. Um so what did you think of this movie just right off the bat? I mean, love it. Like, yeah, uh, it was just a really profound movie and just the universal uh, truth of it, even though it's a very specific story. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's something that, you know, you can tell a specific story that you've never experienced and still find the relatability in it. And it's just something that, you know, Moonlight, God, yeah, no, I'm really excited to talk about this because it hit me so hard whenever, you know, we watched it. And I know you took me on my birthday to go see it uh, forever ago. It's one of those movies that it sounds like it's going to be harder to watch than it is. Like the previews look a little too emotional and some and in some odd ways, like uh, it's so high art that it's going to be boring. Um, and every time I sit down and I've only watched it twice now, but every time I've sat down to watch it, I just get lost within it within minutes. Like it's, yeah. 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 yeah I tried to get, I tried to get, um, my wife to watch it with me, but she didn't, she didn't want to cause she didn't want to feel the feels again. Um, she's, you know, has her moments where she just doesn't, she can't handle things like that. But then I watched it and I thought, you know what, it's, it's actually, it's, it's difficult, but it's beautiful. So it's definitely something that you can digest easier than you think. Yeah. You expect it to be harder than it really is to watch, you know? And that says a lot about the filmmaking, a lot about the script writing, a lot about the story in general, but also about the acting. It was phenomenal. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really great. But anyway, uh, if you have not seen Moonlight, pause this episode, go watch it. Uh, cause we're going to be giving away some spoilers and there are some spoilers in this film that, that you want to, you want to be able to, to, to experience them yourself, not from, from us blabbing about our opinions on it. So make sure to pause the episode and go watch that. hundred percent. We'll talk about a, uh, a lot of things for sure. Cinematography at a minimum, touching on camera work and the lighting. Um, we'll talk about directing and specifically about visual storytelling, because even though, you know, you might have a cinematographer who's working with the director, uh, ultimately it is the director who's going to be pointing out where to point the camera. And in the edit, 
where to keep that uh, edit on. And so all that comes down to visual storytelling and how you want to communicate uh, an emotion or a thought or an action to the audience and how you want them to experience it. That all comes down to directing. And it's something that we don't really talk enough about uh, directorial decisions. And so uh, we'll, we'll you know touch on that and we'll lightly touch on makeup and how it can affect the schedule, the shooting schedule. As well as uh, I can't talk about this uh, without talking about some of the story and writing um, and other such stuff and things and stuff. Quick synopsis of the film. A young man, a young African-American man grapples with his identity and sexuality while experiencing the everyday struggles of childhood, adolescence and burgeoning adulthood. It's directed by Barry Jenkins, screenplay by Barry Jenkins, story by Terrell Alvin McCraney, cinematography by James Laxton, starring Mahershala. Ali as Juan, uh, Naomi Harris as Paula, Janelle Monet as Teresa, Alex Hibbert as Little, Ashton Sanders as Chiron, and Trevante Rhodes as Black. What's well, so it? You gonna raise my son now? Huh? You gonna raise my son? Yeah. That's what I thought. You gonna raise him? You gonna keep selling me rocks? Motherfucker. Don't give me that, you gotta get it from somewhere, shit nigga. I'm getting it from you. But you gonna raise my son though, right? Hmm? You ever see the way he was? What? You watching their mouth. You gonna tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time? Huh? You gonna tell him? You ain't shit. Come on, let's go. There's a lot of things I like about that scene. Um, for one, it's not a scene that you think of after you finish watching this movie. You, you don't think of this at all. And very little of you probably even goes to thinking about uh, his mom, uh, the, you know, the drug addict. Yet it's still indicates and kind of points to how wide this film is you on the one hand you definitely recognize you're watching a movie about a kid who grows up you know into a man as a black gay man and you know uh, the black community and a particularly difficult one in, in you know Miami and so on its outset as from the high level that's what you're thinking of whenever you think of this movie but whenever you start kind of drilling down you start to see a lot of other details in there you think about you know it is about poverty and it's also uh, about uh, drugs and addiction and selling and that whole dynamic of within a community you have dealers and you have buyers and uh, they're not as far apart from each other as you you might think and so it's such a wide area and jail and the effects of jail, um, they kind of point at very lightly again, um, that Chiron goes to prison or goes to, to juvenile detention. And that's where he learns how to be a drug dealer. 
You know, he gets a connection through jail. He was a good kid before going to jail to juvie and he came out, you know, as a drug dealer. And so there's a very light indication of some of the uh, systemic issues in, you know, in regard to the, the prison system um, and the real outcomes that, that come through it. And so there's all these conversations. And I love that uh, you don't necessarily focus on all those things. They're just a part of his life um, because it's such an honest story. It doesn't tackle one thing. It mostly focuses on Chiron's story throughout all this, but it, you know, kind of lightly indicates all the things that are shaping his environment and who he is as a person. And, and then on top of that, it's kind of hard to find a really good scene with Chiron just because he doesn't talk a lot. He's a quiet kid. Um, and so finding us, I thought it would be, you know, a little bit more fun to, to watch Marshala Ali and Naomi Harris kind of uh, butt heads because uh, they're incredible actors, no doubt. But that all said, I assume you've only seen this a couple times. Um, I, I wouldn't imagine this is something that's easy to kind of rewatch or uh, that pulls you to rewatch it so much as pulls you to think about it. But whenever you think about this movie, especially over the last, you know, three years, what comes to mind? Like, what are your impressions of this? Uh, yeah, I've only seen it twice in the theater and then this time. And I mean, it makes me think of, well, first off, let's address the elephant in the room where two, two white guys talking about uh, a, you know, a specific, this story specific is a black story, right? Mm -hmm. It's, there are, there are, stories about gay kids growing up. Um, but I feel like that is a different story than if you're growing up in Miami as a black boy. Right. And I think that that's why this is, it's so pointed, right? It's like very specific on this topic. So I have no idea what that's like, right? None. So we're just speaking to the, the, the story itself and, um, and the storytelling. Um, but the, not from their points of view, but this, the story itself, it just is, I mean, it's heartbreaking, especially at the beginning. And, you know, you've seen movies before white or black kids, not growing up with fathers. And that is hard to see. It sucks. But it, particularly in this case, it's like really difficult to, to watch this little boy trying to navigate knowing he's different and not knowing really why well now he, he kind of thinks he knows why when he's a kid but and then when he gets older knowing why you know but never being able to express it and it's very heartbreaking that he doesn't have a father obviously that his mother is is a drug addict and stuff but like specifically that he doesn't have a father and i think it's the re reason why that affects me so much is because of want of marshall ali uh, it just plays that role so well. You want him to be his dad. When she says, you're going to raise my boy, you're like, yeah, he should totally raise your boy. Absolutely. Um, and then it's even more heartbreaking later because he's gone, you know, when he grows, when he grows up a little bit and he's a teenager, he's gone. I guess he, he died or is in prison or whatever. He's just gone. I love that they don't tell you anything. He's just not there anymore. Um, it's like, a little, it's like their story, right? We don't get the insight into that, but it's just, it's another, it's another man who's out of his life for whatever reason. And I don't know if that's supposed to be it, like meaningful in a, the, like the sexual realm, right? That the, the men are leaving. And so he grabs onto men or if it's just this, this is the story, right? 
in some cases, I think that in films, I think that there's, there's reasons for everything, obviously, but sometimes there's just a story and that this just feels like part of the story, but it's a, it's really heartbreaking that he, he doesn't have a male figure and then he does. And then it's taken away from him again. Um, and you just love him. You love, uh, I mean the, you know, you love, uh, Jerome and am I saying his name wrong? Chiron. Chiron. Yeah. You love Chiron and you love, uh, Juan and you love them together and you want Juan to, to teach him, right. To help him grow up, not teach him to sell drugs, but to teach him to be a man, to teach him to, uh, grow up as a good person, you know, to care about other people. And the way that he answers his, um, when he's a little boy, the way that Juan answers his question of, of what's a faggot. And he, he, he could say, he could be really hard and he could say something terrible, but he doesn't. He says, that's why the people say to make you feel bad. And it's just such a, a grown up adult, like, like mentor thing to say. And I think that the script writing really, uh, leans on that. You know, it gives, gives them this, gives him this moment to, he could be a shitty person. He could be a shitty guy in every other respect, but with this kid, he's a good man and it gives him the opportunity to be that. And so we, we like him, even though he's a, a drug dealer. And then you have the dichotomy of the mother buying the drugs from him. And it's just, so then you're warring with, is he a good guy? Is he not? I don't really care if he's a bad guy. I just want him to raise the, raise the little boy. And then, you know, towards the end when we, we realize, you know, like, okay, he, he is, he is gay and we want him to be okay with that. We want him to like, like in internally, like say, okay, I'm, I'm okay. And it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful story. I mean, like how often do you see a story where, I mean, where, where the, the kid who was beat up and grown up, uh, when he, when he was growing up as a, a gay person meets up with their first love and it's, and they hold each other and that's the end of the movie. I mean, that rarely happens. And I think that when you start this movie, you don't expect that to happen. You expect something real bad to happen. So my emotions go like this or like all over the place throughout the whole film. There are wins, there are losses. Like when you see that he's grown up in the, the third, I guess I'll call it the third chapter when he's, he's grown up and he's filled out. I mean, you know, dude is stout. Right. <laughs> um, and then he's got other people under him as much as you wish he wasn't a drug dealer. You're like, well, at least he's like the man, right? Mm. Nobody's picking on this dude anymore. Right. And that was such a good choice to have that transformation. Um, yeah. So that guy's from Austin, uh, Trevante. Dude, he's incredible. And our buddy Nick actually knows him, like, uh, and oh. didn't know that he was doing the film until he was watching the film. He's like, oh, hey. What? What the heck? Wow. That's always a fun experience. If you, I feel like at this point, if you're at least, I don't know, 25 years old, you've probably experienced that in some capacity where you're watching mm -hmm. something and someone you know kind of pops up on TV or in a movie. It's just like, whoa, that's so random. I mean, probably not. No? I mean, no. I mean, I, I have, Yeah. but I lived in LA for five years. Yeah. You know, you've been in film for, you know, th yeah. a third of your life. So I mean, before I was even acting, like I was in my early 20s and um, I went to see Peter Berg's Friday Night Lights and 
one of my buddies popped up as one of the main characters and it was just like, whoa, oh, wow. this is so random. Uh, <laughs> part of my problem was I'm not good with faces. And so I wasn't sure until the credits rolled if that was really him. <laughs> I was just like, I think you that's have, my buddy. You have a condition, right? Yeah, and it's what, so what's that? What's it called? There's a name. Yeah. Uh, facial blindness. I, I forget the, the more technical name, but it's okay. facial blindness. But this guy walks in, Trevante um, Rhodes uh, walks in and they hadn't really considered casting someone as beautiful as he is, right? He's just this uh, beautiful face, huge, jacked up, um, got his shit together. They were thinking, you know, something completely different, but he walked in and he completely owned it. Like, because you're the, the fear that I would have casting him is that my audience isn't going to believe that this guy is the same guy. Yeah. But his performance is so good. He's such a good actor that it leaves no question like, oh, yeah, this is the same guy. And I love that choice that they still that they went with it, even though that wasn't their initial you know, idea, because it also hints at what's happened between the time he gets thrown in juvie, uh, arrested to the time that we pick him up as black, as a drug dealer. And you immediately see he built walls and he's never going to let anybody ever hurt him again. Like it's yeah. all right there in the physicality um, and his personality but he has this, but he has this like air of like of forgiveness too, yeah. which I think he gets from, from Juan with the kid on the couch, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is he's vulnerable. He's still vulnerable, especially whenever he picks up with Kevin, like you can see all that vulnerability and uh, insecurity just kind of immediately come right back, even though he's kind of smooth. He's just, you know, like you said, he's uh, the way he's handling his business, the way he talks and treats people. He's still, you know, you can still feel that he's a good person. Um, but as soon as the, uh, he gets on the phone with Kevin, you feel him as a little kid again. Um, and he just kind of, it's just, it's a really great performance. Wow. Kudos uh, to the casting. Yeah. hundred percent. But yeah. And going back to, you know, your comment about, you know, is Juan good or is he bad and is, you know, black good or is he bad? Uh, you know, because these are drug dealers and I love that they never really make you make that decision. They kind of pose the question in that clip that we played, you know, you're selling me something that's destroying my life and you're doing it. It's not somebody else. But I love that it's it's all in there without a lot of judgment because it's so much more complex than that um, whenever you're looking at who Juan is to shy like you see that he's a good father figure and he's looking after him and uh, he's giving him security all those things that you were talking about you know sitting at the table and now he's looking at do how do I answer this question like in our community being gay is definitely not good and it's gonna it's gonna make your life really hard but he still answers it with uh, so much you know gentility and you know finesse and lack of judgment he's telling him that you can be whatever you want that's that scene on the beach right um, whenever he's talking about you know they wanted to call me blue and I love the the response he's like so your name is blue he's like no at some point you got to decide who you want to be. Um, and nobody else can decide that for you. Um, and so he's given this, this little boy who's, you know, uh, questioning everything in life. Um, and he's, he's trying to empower him, uh, empower him and give him autonomy and, you know, self embodiment. Uh, and it's just beautiful and it's so much more complex, right. Than drug dealer, good or bad, uh, you know, cause plenty of films are easy to, to make those depictions and, and, 
and it's not just a, a, a black, you know, film thing or the way black people are depicted in a lot of films. There's uh, white films, you know, where you have a good guy and a bad guy and they play any heroes as the bad guy, right? Is someone who is doing that something in society that we would say this is a person who deserves to be locked up. But the way they're presented is and so much more complex. You have, you know, a, a bad actor, so to speak, who's doing theft or uh, murder and we're looking at him as a good guy in comparison to who's after him like the cop that's after him is doing everything that's wrong and so it's always if it's good storytelling much more complex than just these surface characterizations and I love that we never have to make those uh, decisions here we're just allowing people to be three-dimensional and complex um, we don't know one story. We never get to hear much of a story. We know that he's from Cuba, um, and that's about the end of it. Um, we know that he's married to a really good woman, and that's about the end of that. <laughs> like, they allow so much more complexity by just kind of letting things be and instead that's, focusing yes. on uh, who they are and the actions they, they take and the way they treat each other. Uh, and it's beautiful. I just adore this kind of storytelling mm -hmm. to no end for sure. Yeah. How about that opening shot, too? He pulls up in his car, and it's just a hard cut. We open there, and then we just kind of explore this space in 360. Like, we start spinning and spinning. Um, and there's another really great spinning moment that happens later in the film that is a little bit of an echo where right before uh, Chiron gets beat up by Kevin. Um, like, we start spinning and spinning and spinning, and it lands on something negative. And it's interesting because they use that and you don't know what's it's putting us out of sorts. It's disorienting us as we're following a drug dealer. We're like, oh, this guy's a drug dealer. Um, and our, our knee jerk reaction is he's up to no good. And then we next time we pick him up, he's rescuing Chiron um, as a little boy, uh, as little. And to see then that's our first hint of, oh, man, this is. There's, there's something else at work here. Uh, and then, of course, the story progresses and we see so much more embodiment through the camera work. I mean, it's it's really beautiful. There's a couple of things at play with cinematography. The widescreen aspect ratio, I think it does a, a, a very simple thing, which is it adds a beautiful veneer to a personal story. Um, it's really easy to kind of look at. Uh, widescreen and just insert it wherever to make it beautiful. But the temptation with this kind of story is to make it a, a more boxy, traditional uh, 16 by 9, full screen, full widescreen, because it adds a more documentary feel to it. It adds a little bit more personal uh, touch to it that it's it's not as uh, scripted or it's not as whenever you have, especially combined with the, the free floating camera movement, right? It's the camera movement itself is like a documentary. And so I think pairing that camera style with a widescreen aspect ratio adds that kind of heartbreaking romance to the, to the story that you wouldn't get in a full screen. It allows you to kind of depict more of the environment um, because the environment matters, even though it's never the focus outside of maybe, you know, a handful of shots on the ocean. For the most part, the environment isn't that big of a deal in, in the sense of you need to know where these characters are because this kind of story, it also kind of lends itself to staying inside the personal space of Chiron, but they don't. And so shooting it anamorphically uh, allows you to kind of 
establish the the not just the geography but the locations and the the atmosphere the setting uh being in miami you know comes so much more to life and of course just anamorphic not just because anamorphic doesn't necessarily mean widescreen you can shoot widescreen without ever touching an anamorphic lens anamorphic lenses had this other kind of uh, beautiful quality to uh, the film through the way it kind of compresses and decompresses the image it adds these very uh, elongated bokeh the background takes on these aberrating effects and depending on the kind of story you're telling it can impact it in a number of ways but in, in this case it adds a very you know beautiful romantic uh feeling and flow to it and then with the the camera movement i love it's not always a super smooth or even motivated camera movement normally camera moves are motivated through action in the in the film like you pass off if one character is you know walking left to right you might walk with them until they pass someone else and then we land on whoever it is they just passed we don't ever have always motivated camera moves uh, instead we're just kind of watching the conversation and it, what it does is gives us a feeling of embodiment in the scene and like we the audience are looking around as people are talking instead of you know, the the characters motivating a move, the sound and audio and discussion and conversation uh, motivate the camera movements to look around for us. And so we feel like a character in this and it gives us embodiment in the film. And it's really cool. It makes you, uh, I think, empathize a lot more with what's going on. In terms of cinematography, the lighting is I mean, it's all beautiful. Uh, one of the things that really caught my eye, though, is how they lit uh, the apartment, like whenever uh, in chapter three uh, or in the third act with Black in his apartment, he's doing the money counting like you were talking about on the couch uh, with one of his soldiers. It's a basic white walled apartment. It's got these basic, you know, hanging shutters. And yet it's beautiful. And they did that through the lighting. Uh, they gave the living room this kind of orange uh, lighting. And then the, uh, the, the kitchen has this blue lighting. And we stayed much closer to everybody. We don't show a lot of wide angles. Um, and that just allowed us a lot of soft and beautiful and interesting lighting in a space that would otherwise be really boring and plain. I've seen so many films shoot in an apartment, which is fine. But they tend to just kind of... Uh, the smaller films, not like the the, the, the pros, uh, the smaller films tend to do this thing where they'll just kind of strike a lamp uh, and that'll be that. And it's usually not like a soft lamp. It's usually like this lamp that's the uh, just shooting light straight into the ceiling. And it just does nothing. It flattens the wall. It, it's just really poor when there's so many more opportunities. And they clearly took their time lighting the, uh, the apartment because uh, it's gorgeous. And it's something that you wouldn't assume you could rent, you know, for a day uh, for like 150 bucks. <laughs> they took a really basic apartment. Um, what was the budget for this? Do we ooh, know? That's a good question. I'll look it up. My, my knee-jerk reaction would be around $5 million, but Unbelievable. I can imagine this being a 1.5 or a 10 million. Let's see. You know, it just goes to show you that. Uh, yeah, 4 million. All, so it was right, okay. right around where You're I was right thinking. on the money. Yeah. Uh, it's about the story, right? Yep. It's about, I mean, there it is at its core about the story. I mean, you know, you have to have great cinematography and lighting, acting, and a screenplay. But if you, if this, if the core, the story isn't 
impactful or motivating or, or says something specific, then, then nothing else is going to make that a great film. In this film, four million bucks and awards everywhere. Like it's just unbelievable. And it's, it's going to be remembered for a long time. So that just goes to show like anybody writing something like start with the story and then build everything around that. The story is your scaffolding. hundred percent. Just to dive a little into directing, like there's so much strong visual storytelling because you're right. The, the story is so, so good and great directing allowed that to really spring to life. One of the, I think the starting point you have to understand about visual storytelling is wherever you point the camera, or hold a shot or hold an angle, you're indicating that there's something there to see or understand. And whenever you, you, you know, take in account uh, the idea of the, the Kuleshov effect of you cut from one thing to another, you're, you're implying something between these two shots and trying to understand how your audience is going to digest that or perceive it will give you so much more space in how you tell your story uh, effectively. And so, for instance, we look at uh, Little, whenever in, in the first act, we're usually watching Chiron silently reacting to the world around him, right? He's kind of in fear of everyone. And that starts with how we how we encounter him, right? He's being chased into uh, this kind of abandoned apartment where that's kind of littered with drug paraphernalia. And he's being taunted and yelled at and he's just by himself. And we don't hear him speak for quite a while, but just the way people are treating him um, and watching how he reacts to them. Like we see him go to Juan, takes him to eat, right? And he asks him a question and Chiron doesn't answer. He just keeps eating and he takes away the food and we see him hang his head until he gets his food back. And we're, of course, taking into account what, Paul, what Juan is saying. But I think more importantly is you could have easily have missed, missed the opportunity in that shot by not having him hang his head. You could have, you know, made him say something. Um, you could have made him angry. Instead, you indicate shame. You indicate uh, embarrassment and uh, fear all through just hanging his head. And by showing that on camera, like that's very basic, simple visual storytelling that are missed opportunities in so many other projects, especially, you know, uh, people who are new to the game. And then you fast forward into uh, the second act with Chiron. We see it whenever he's on the beach with Kevin, right? We see all these longing looks from Kevin as he's looking at Chiron and it's building up this idea of, is there a connection here? Because we already know, we've already established Chiron is different. And through the conversation with Juan early in the, the first chapter, uh, we're understanding that, you know, he has some gay tendencies and we, you know, hear the way his mom speaks about him. And so there's there's already a, a, a subcurrent going there and we don't understand Kevin's, you know, pull towards Sharon until we're seeing them on the beach and we're watching Kevin watch Sharon. So we're no longer watching how Sharon is reacting. We're just watching someone watch someone else, someone that we know has a thing inside them and just watching him just having the camera on him and having these glances and just staying there, not cutting to Chiron. We're again, visually making an assertion through our, through our edit, through our camera positioning that there's something there to see. There's something there to understand. 
And so we start as an audience, we start to assume things. We start to make these own internal implications that are not hinted at in, in any other way, because we've heard Kevin talk about, you know, having sex and, you know, in the hallway with uh, these girls. And so it would be easy to assume that he's not gay. But all those interactions, all those looks give us something to go on. And then, of course, uh, whenever Chiron goes home after that, right, after that sequence, and he feels his mom's touch uh, on his cheek. I love there's this really brief moment where he kind of leans into it and he's embracing. He's like, finally. And then, of course, his mom, you know, kind of steals that away by declaring he doesn't love her. Um, and there's this shame that kind of creeps back on him. And it's just there. It's there that we begin to see his how much he needs touch through what is briefly there and then withheld from his mom. And then fast forward again, still on visual storytelling here uh, to chapter three, uh, Black. And there is this really, really great connection that we make in tying. Because again, going back to what we were saying earlier, these are two radically different characters jumping from chapter two to three. Uh, mm -hmm. two different actors playing the same person. And the trick there is to make sure the audience understands this is Chiron. And it's so important to make sure that they understand that without ever having to think or ask the question. Because sometimes by having them ask the question, you lose the audience's participation for an amount of time and, until they are confirmed that, okay, yeah, this is definitely, you know, Chiron still. And so by never making them, and that's tricky, man. My last project, I did the, I had the same problem that they had, which was I had three different actors in three different same age ranges playing uh, one character. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand how I can make sure the audience always knows who is who and a lot of time whatever that's a whole other thing but it's a tricky thing that you have to consider and the way that they did it here in that transition they tied his aging in through a flashback of his mom yelling at him and then we cut straight to Sharon waking up out of a nightmare having aged you know 10 years and it's perfect because you you, you immediately know okay we jumped in time again and this is Sharon. holy crap he got jacked while he was in, you know, jail or wherever he was. Uh, whatever's happened between now and then, this guy has changed everything. Um, yeah. He is not the same person. And then establishing his new personality. And I, going back again to that phone call with Kevin, he's quiet. He reverts to the sweet kid again. That go just goes right to performance and directing of like, here's who he is in his core. And these three actors kept it so pitch perfect through all three performances. It says a lot about the acting and it says a ton about the directing because we don't see what, what's in the outtakes. Mm -hmm. We don't see whenever, you know, he, he course corrected. Uh, we only see the final product. Um, and for that, you have to assume Barry Jenkins is just doing uh, the Lord's work. <laughs> like he is just <laughs> picking every right take and he's pushing yeah. every right button to make sure that they're all on the same page because there's a lot to keep track of there. And lastly, in terms of visual storytelling, uh, in the diner, we get to see so much fear and vulnerability uh, in Shy's face. Like we feel it through his performance and through the empathy for the character we've built up because we have all the same questions I think that he's having in those moments. And we'll get to that when we get to uh, the storytelling section. But it's every section of this film, you 
you're being told through the, the visual storytelling what's going on in this character. Because otherwise, uh, it's not necessarily there in the dialogue. The dialogue isn't always pointing at what's going on. Instead, the subtext is all visually communicated. Uh, and this is an excellent film to study for that. Hats off to Barry freaking Jenkins. And it's, 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 an, it's a good... The reason why it's good is not just because of it does what it does well. It's like there are other movies that you could look at for the same thing, but it's it's just it's simple. Like the way that they do that is in a way where you could literally take that that form and put it in a different a different story and it would still work. It's not so convoluted that you couldn't imagine doing it with another story or how to do it yourself. It's literally like, it's this easy, just do this and plug this style into another movie, like any other movie or story or, or whatever. And you can, and you can do the same thing. So it's kind of inspiring in that way. Cause a lot of times, a lot of times, like if you, if you, you know, are starting to write a screenplay or you have an idea and you're, and you're thinking, man, I would love it you know, if I could tell the story more visually rather than through, through, uh, words, but man, how do you, you know, where do you even start? How do you do that? I mean, just watch this, this film for that, with that in mind, and you could get a ton of great ideas on how to do that. Right. Little things, like you said, little chai holding, hanging his head down or taking a shot of the, the, the teenage chai after he's gotten his face beat up of him, just like standing there staring at the, at the camera, like, you know, but just like, you know, very, you know, chest out, like proud, you know, like there are moments like in that moment tells you everything about he had a, he had a paradigm shift in his brain in that moment. And I know that because of what I saw, not because of what I heard. It's just like, it's so easy to do it when you watch this film rather than, uh, you know, there's other films that if you're like, man, I don't know how I would have done how I thought of that or done that or whatever, but this film really like breaks it down pretty well. Absolutely. And just to linger on that a little bit more. So one of the hard things for me that I've been getting better and better at that I'm trying to get better and better at that I started seeing progress on my last film was you're shooting a scene. There's a reason that things happen on a set the way they do. Like as a director, Barry Jenkins shouldn't be running and grabbing people water. He shouldn't be, you know, helping set up a light stand. Uh, he should be doing one thing, which is focusing on what he's about to shoot. What's the next scene at hand? And this is something I've been guilty of that I literally, well, on my last film, uh, someone needed the water, I'd like run and grab them water. I was just trying to show people that they're valuable and that they're, uh, they're important to me and I want to treat everybody on set really well. That wasn't the best use of my time, though. And it wasn't until I think the second day of shooting that I, I looked back over my day and I realized I missed this and I missed this because I wasn't focused on what I was trying to accomplish. Um, and so at that at that point, I less and less started, you know, kept helping people do things. We hired people on set to do those things for a reason. And, and it's because I'm the only person who has this pro entire project in their head and understands what this entire project is trying to be. And it became important. And I, you know, told my producer, I was like, and we were just kind of wrapping up after, you know, the first day of shooting. He's like, what's going well? What's not going well? What can I do better? What do you need help with? And I was like, honestly, man, I just realized that I need to stop helping as much and I need to start focusing on the scene ahead of time. And so I'm going to be less helpful, you know, from here on out. 
And he's like, great. Uh, that's what we're here for. I'm like, okay. And so whenever a scene is coming up, I would just sit down and reread the scene. Like that's something that is really easy to skip over because in your head, you have a version of the scene that may not be what you wrote because whenever, whenever I'm writing something, I'm thinking, here's all the intricacies. Here's what's playing into the next scene or, you know, 10 scenes down the line. Here's where, here's where I'm setting that other scene up and here's what I emotionally want to communicate. Here's the vibe and the, the through line of this scene. And if I don't take the time to reread the scene and start thinking through my shots and my shot list and why I have a shot listed on my shot list in the first place, I'll forget. It's a lot. I mean, I was only doing 30 pages. Barry Jenkins is doing, you know, uh, 100 pages. 150. Yeah. I mean, it's a 150 <laughs> minute film and or, uh, an hour and 50 minute no. film. Yeah. Uh, 110 so pages. 110. You yeah. know, if it's by the if it holds the true adage of one page per minute which is give or take, but on average, I personally find that to be about accurate. And so it's really easy to get caught up and forget what the scene is trying to accomplish in the script, what emotionally you want people to feel and how to, you know, enunciate that. And if you don't review it, you may not be able to catch your actor, you know, missing a moment and you can walk in between takes and say, Hey, actually here's a beat that you're missing. Hold like you're going to say a line, just hold, add, give me a pause there, maybe look to your left, and then deliver your line. Um, or you're not making eye contact. I need you to make eye contact and hold it. And if you don't think through those moments, uh, you're not going to be able to communicate them to your actors. And, it, and if you don't do that, obviously, you're not going to have it there in post when you go to edit your thing. Uh, and so taking the time to reread your work and understand why you have what's going on. And it's so, it's so absolutely mission critical. Um, and Barry Jenkins clearly understood his screenplay backwards and forwards and understood all the emotional beats. And he just absolutely delivered it. And he probably had more time in terms of rehearsal and, you know, sitting with your team, blah, blah, blah. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, just, I could watch this film, you know, 10 more times and learn 10 more things. Like it's true. Uh, so many small little moments that are happening that are easy to take away and, you know, build on. And with that in mind, just touching on makeup, there's just something that kind of occurred to me, you know, after my last project where in chapter two, Chiron gets beat up by Kevin, right? And then he goes and attacks his bully, right? He land, which lands him in juvenile detention. So before the attack, we see him in uh, whatever the nurse or the counselor's office, and he's bandaged up and he's got this, you know, cut. And we see him right after that, we see him charge into the classroom to attack the bully. Now that they only really ever filmed that one classroom. And so it would have been easy to film all the classroom scenes in the same day. And this goes into scheduling and how do you approach a thing? On the other hand, if the makeup was going to be, you know, a challenge and maybe getting him into that makeup takes an hour or maybe it takes an hour and a half, maybe instead of scheduling the classroom scenes all in the same day, uh, maybe you schedule around uh, the makeup transformation And so that in pre-production, maybe you're able to take photos of here's what we want this makeup to look like. Now you have a reference point for your makeup artist. Now that you've set it on the look, they have a reference point to recreate that look, you know, five times. Maybe he looks like that in five different scenes, right? Because he beats him up. He gets hauled into the, the police cruiser. These all could have been separate days. 
based on what made the most efficient use of their time and budget. Like it could have been easier to film all the classroom scenes in the same day. That means you have to decide, do we want to shoot the makeup, the makeup scene first with the stunt, right? He slams a chair over his back back and that breaks into a thousand pieces. Like that's a stunt that, that could take a lot of resetting. It could take 20 chairs, you know, Uh, maybe you start your day with him in makeup and then you shoot the the scene where he charges in and, and knocks him out. And then you can wipe all the makeup off and then put him film the rest of those classroom scenes uh, after that. And now you've made your day. You've, you can uh, wrap the classroom and all the students that are in that classroom. Wardrobe changes, all that. Or maybe you shoot it in sequence. We do the makeup once and then we shoot the, the counselor's office. And then we shoot the classroom scene and then we shoot the uh, him going into the police cruiser. Like maybe you schedule it around that and it all comes down to, and this is more of a, a line producer hat of, what's going to be the most efficient to in, in budget. Or if you're a director, you might say, I want to shoot these all in absolute sequence so that my actor has the absolute most emotional uh, throughput to understand what's happening and why. Like I just experienced a scene where I got my ass kicked by the one person I thought would actually, uh, who knows me and understands me. And now I am filled with rage at the person who set this in motion. And you're giving your actor the most emotional punch, uh, no pun intended, in order to achieve you know this, this peak at the, uh, the height of this chapter. And so there's a lot of ways to approach it. And with $4 million, I wouldn't be surprised if they chose the chronological sequence, uh, just Mm -hmm. because this feels like the kind of thing that Barry Jenkins would, would choose is, you know, I want to make sure my actor has the most, uh, to, to play with. And I'm going to give him all the build up to that sequence in order to, you know, capture, uh, the most raw emotional, uh, moment possible. It's a pivotal moment in his life. Absolutely critical. Yep. Yeah. But those are all things to think about as you know, like we did not like in our film, we had a lot of emotional because our, our character is going through uh, a psychotic break and through jail and through court. Um, and so some of the peak symptoms is what we called it. You know, she looked really dried out. Um, it took, you know, a good half an hour to put her in that makeup. And it wasn't even dr- heavy as heavy as it was for uh, Chiron's character and but we built around some of our shots around that like hey we need a pickup scene over here we're gonna set this at the end of the day so that we can shoot this makeup transformation all in a row like it just Mm -hmm. made for budgeting we did not have four million (laughs) dollars and so but it's amazing like we, we had a fraction of that and still didn't feel like we had enough budget anyway so yeah these are all you know Mm -hmm. things to consider as you're trying to tell your story and so with uh the story and writing switching gears i think you you know that pretty well uh, earlier when talking about juan in chapter one like we fell in love with him through his kindness with chiron right and then and so we go on this interesting little you know emotional ride because we see him as a drug dealer and we're like, okay, we're not sure. Oh, he's really good. He's a good person. Um, and so we fall in love with him. And then we see that he's selling drugs to Shai's mom. And we see his conflict of I'm selling to her. I have no right to, to tell her how to raise her son. But at the same time, he's going to absolutely tell her because he... He loves Chiron more than uh, he's willing to, I don't know, face his own contradictions. Um, But I think that complexity makes him an even more lovable person because 
we don't just see him self-righteous. We see him conflicted about it as well. And that Mm -hmm. you can't have that emotional conflict if you don't have a conscience, if you're not a fully realized person. Um, So it's beautiful writing to allow those moments to to come to fruition. Um, And what I love about that setup in the car is as he's approaching it, your feeling is that he's about to die. He's about to get killed. Totally. As he's approaching this car, we don't know what's going on in there. The music starts to hit and we're just like, oh no, no, no. And there's just, just like your heart is about to catch in your throat because the one good person in Chiron's life is about to, about to get killed. And then we see the, uh, the mom in there and it slightly diffuses it. We're still, I think on edge throughout the rest of that scene, but it, it morphs into this other thing. Uh, and it's so <laughs> beautiful. It's so well done because they set up a bomb that they could have diffused ahead of time by just showing us who was in the car. Instead, uh, they keep that a mystery as we approach and allows uh, a nice dynamic scene to kind of unfold. And it, yeah, it's really, really well, well told. And, and they port- hang on shots a lot longer. So much longer than most, than, than most of the things like they just let it develop. Right. And, so yeah, and most and a lot of other films, they would, you know, he'd walk even if they stayed on him walking over to the car. As soon as he got to the car, they would cut to the mom in the in the car, so you see that. But instead, the camera comes to the other side of the car. He walks around the car and opens the door and pulls out the the mom. And you're like, oh whoa! It lets us. It gives us the the knowledge that he knows something that we don't know for about five seconds. Right. Uh-huh. He realizes the mom. Then there's about five seconds for him to walk around where we're like, what does he know that we don't know? And so it draw, you know, like draws us in a little bit. And then she gets out of the car and you're like, oh, my gosh, um, a- which is is a little it's like it is a surprise because you don't really know to that point what's going on with the mom. You know, like when when he first brings Chiron back to the apartment, you you know, something's a little bit off, but she's, she's nice to Juan. She like, you know, said, you know, holds him, holds Chiron, you know, is like kind to him. And so you don't really know all of that until, until later. Yeah, no, it's really great use of tension and resolution. I love, uh, in the story, there's this, Bible verse I always think of, and it's basically, it just says hope deferred makes the heart sick. I want to say that's out of Proverbs. And I just love that conceptually. And yes, I am agnostic, (laughs) but uh, there's so much good uh, wisdom and, and things that kind of stick with you. And I love this idea of hope deferred makes the heart sick. And they allow us and Chiron to kind of have these hopes and dreams before they dash them. Like, uh, at the, at the end, right. When they're, Chiron drives down to Miami to see Kevin. They give us the hope that Chiron is going to find love again. And then they dash it right where the vibe is still there between them until he pulls out the picture of his kid. And you're like, Oh damn, this, this really sucks. Um, and of course that triggers, you know, uh, Chiron a little bit. He's like, why'd you call me? And I love that, that little moment, you know, where he kind of musters his own strength and is like, what did you want from me? Why did you call me? And I love that it's also reflected in the camera work because we move into these dirty singles where the the over the shoulder shots, as we're looking at both Kevin and Sharon, the head spacing in these uh, over the shoulder shots are very tight. They're very close. And that is speaking to the relationship between the two of them. 
and it's making us feel uh, not necessarily claustrophobic, but the intensity between the two of them um, because they are connected. And that's just kind of visually represented it there. And I also love the, the final talk in Kevin's apartment. It's not a dramatic setting for such a, a real talk, but it grounds the moment like that could have been an easy conversation to take out onto the beach. Mm-hmm. But instead, they just kind of they're hovering around in like his dining room in his apartment. Super undramatic scene uh, setting, but an incredibly profound personal moment that's happening between them. And I think that does a lot to give us buy in uh, into the story, um, because I think if we look back in our own lives, those are the kind of spaces that we usually have those kinds of talks. Um, it's never going to be at the top of a mountain during the rain or whatever. Like yeah. uh, it's in these very simple, unassuming spaces. Um, and I love that they had it there and they end, you know, that whole, the whole film, you know, with Chiron confessing, you're the only man that's ever touched me. The only one, you know, I haven't really touched anyone uh, since. And we cut to him being held by Kevin And that just stays with you. Such a profound moment to think this guy's been alone for his entire life. And really, you know, more specifically, you know, as an adult, the last 10 years of his life, he's hasn't experienced any intimacy or any uh, sense of comfort. And that's that gets back to the, the the universal aspect because we understand loneliness and we understand uh, what it means to have and to not have. And they're tapping into that, even though, you know, on its face, this is a movie about uh, a gay man. It's much more deeply about uh, loneliness and hope and uh, connection. And it's beautiful for that. And I love that we end, uh, we cut from him being held to, cutting to shy as a little boy on the beach and he's bathed in blue and he's looking back at us. And I love that uh, because the ocean is a defining space for Chiron. And this is kind of a hard, this is a kaleidoscope scene. You can see a thousand different things in it. Um, and it's all in what you want to see. There's no answer for this. But to me, when I look at the scene, you recognize the ocean is a very defining space for Chiron. Uh, he experienced the love from Juan here, right? Uh, he learned to swim as a little boy. He heard the story about blue. Um, and that at some point you have to decide for yourself who you're going to be. You can't let it, nobody make that decision for you. And this is also as a, a, a adolescent right he has his first and only sexual experience he gets his nickname black um from you know the first love of his life um kevin um and then we fast forward and as an adult he's adopted black as his name so we see the effect of both juan and kevin on his life juan told him he had to decide who to be and he decided to be like juan a drug dealer And also in that moment on the beach with Kevin uh, to let that be who he really is by choosing black as his name. Um, And it's all embodied right there in the beach. And so finishing the movie at the beach as a kid is kind of an emotional callback that the little boy in him is still going to be okay. He still lives at the beach in his heart because that's where all the good things are. Well said. Yeah. And by being held by Kevin, that's uh, it's, it's affirming. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really cool that they, they older Chiron doesn't go back to the beach. It is the image is of the younger version of himself at the beach. Yeah. He's still that little boy that, and, and he just, just cut to it. Like why beat around the bush? Like why, <laughs> why have them travel to the beach? No, like you're right. You know, having that really important scene in a 
claustrophobic, tiny ass kitchen. Right. But it's a, it's a, it's meaningful that they're in the kitchen because Kevin loves cooking, you know, and it's like, it's something special that he's sharing, you know, with Chiron, right. Uh, something else special that he's sharing with him in a space that's important to him. Um, and then, but we end with the space that's important to Chiron, which is the, which is the beach. So yeah, man, well said. So good. Yeah. Lastly, the, the only note I had about writing specifically was I love that they don't, they don't ever speak down to the audience. Like they never make things that you might not understand super easy to understand. Like they always stay in their own world. We're in their world. They're not bringing their world to us. We have to go to their world. Um, and so whenever you use, you know, phrases like trapping, like uh, contextually, the audience probably understands. I'm, And for that, I'm not thinking of people like us. I'm thinking of, you know, people who have only ever been in whatever upstate New York, right? They can understand, they, they may not understand trapping. Like, what does that mean? Uh, and, and it's lingo, you know, for drug dealing fronts. And you may not understand that's uh, the grill that he's, you know, rocking in his mouth, the gold grill. And so throughout the entire film, they're never making things obvious. They're never, you know, spelling it out. Um, and that takes a lot of trust in the audience, but it also takes a lot of confidence in your storytelling to know that whether or not the audience picks it up doesn't really matter. That what matters is that we're telling this story as honestly and faithfully as we possibly can. And to do that, they never once uh, speak down to the audience. And yeah, freaking amazing. I mean, that's Barry Jenkins, man. He, I just, I'm such in awe of this guy. I've, I've mentioned it before that his first film medicine for melancholy, uh, was not a great film. Like I watched it and at the time it was, you know, making waves in like Tribeca. And I was like, Oh man, I got to watch this thing. And I watched it and I was like, okay, uh, it was a movie. And I think that was what I ended up uh, having such a profound effect on me. It was like, yeah, but you know what? He made a freaking movie. It didn't matter that he didn't have a $4 million budget. He had a, whatever, a $10,000 budget. He went and made a movie and his follow-up won an Oscar. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy and amazing. And it's absolutely indicative of his talent and the, the fact that he didn't let anything hold him back. He went out and uh, he kept working and uh, he found it and his writing is every bit as good. And it's, it's, it's incredibly inspiring, you know, as a filmmaker to see, uh, the, the landscape that he painted between his first and second film, like good Lord, man. Yeah. Goals. Yeah. <laughs> Just keep going. Yeah. That's all you can keep do. Keep creating, you know, absolutely. Don't slow down. Don't stop. Just keep going. Definitely. Love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much all I got. I don't know. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, a lot. So. I mean, I think we could, yeah, you know, with movies like this, you could talk about it all day because, you know, you talk about one scene and, oh, you there? Mm -hmm. It is easy to kind of look at any one given scene and keep going on it because there's so much in this film, uh, despite there being all of like 10 minutes of dialogue. <laughs> like it's, yeah. uh, it's such a visual story and an emotional story. And this is something, and I'm so glad it won a best picture. Uh, most of my favorite films don't win best picture. Um, half of them don't even get nominated for best picture. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and let's, touch on that for just a second i don't watch the oscars uh not because i don't value them because i don't really like watching award shows but i was 
having exchanging texts with my friend Kishan and she was watching and she knew that I loved Moonlight. And uh, so she was keeping me updated like, OK, they're doing best picture. And she was like, oh, man, La La Land just won uh, best picture. And I was like, doggone it. You know, yeah. what I, you know, that sucks. I mean, La La Land's great, but I feel like this is just kind of Hollywood getting off on itself because it's it's a Hollywood movie about Hollywood, even though it's a great movie and we covered it and you should go listen to that. Uh, but I was frustrated for Moonlight because I thought it was a much superior film and a, a singular film at that. And so 20 seconds later, she's like, hold on, wait a second. I was like, hold on for what? Uh, she's like, no, it looks like Moonlight just won. I was like, wait, what are you talking about? And it, and everyone knows by now that they announced for La La Land, even though Moonlight won. And so mm-hmm. the the producers, and that's usually gets to collect uh, the best picture, are the producers of the film. They go up, collect for La La Land, and get told, crap, we screwed it up, Moonlight won. And they're like, oh my God, like, well, well done, well deserved. And I think Damon Chazelle did his best to, to course correct. But I, but it also kind of breaks my heart because it's such an amazing film and it's so uh, singular in what it is, movie about uh, a gay black man winning Best Picture. That should be where all the attention goes. And yep. it got upstaged due to, you know, a, a slip up. And I think it was an honest slip up. I don't think anybody had it, had it out for Moonlight. Um, no. an honest mistake. But it just sucks that, you know, for the next whatever week that all the talk was about La La Land uh, accidentally getting it instead of saying Moonlight won Best Picture. Y'all need to go watch this movie and support the film. I think in, in hindsight that that story has been lost and most of the most of people, you know, think about Moonlight. But I think just having lost that week, uh, that's the most important week. It, look at what winning Best Picture did for Slumdog Millionaire. Like it turned that movie into a mega success like overnight. And so that was something that I thought, you know, got stolen from Moonlight and it definitely breaks my heart. And so I'm really glad yeah. we're covering it. I know we're not going to have the same impact as a best <laughs> picture win, uh, but I'm whatever, man, I'm hoping that, you know, it'll encourage at least a few more people to go, to go watch this movie for sure. And it's on Netflix. So yeah. watch it for free. Heck to the, yeah. So definitely. Well, you should have, if you're listening to this still, you should have already seen it. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. Fantastic film. I mean, I, I give it a 10 out of 10. Easy, easy. Yeah. Uh, because it's first glance, like I'm, I have no problem with giving a film a lower rating because it's harder to watch or because it's not rewatchable, but I feel like this film is rewatchable and it is, there is a lot there to it. And it's so interesting. We, we agree 90% of the time, even on stuff like this, which is so subjective, (laughs) you know, is this rewatchable? Like that's pretty damn subjective, subjective. (laughs) Um, but it just, yes, we have very similar tastes, but it also just is a good movie in that regard. You know what I mean? So hopefully, hopefully you guys out there agree or don't agree. And if you don't, please just, you know, put it in the comments and, and let us know and let us know what you want us to do next week or the week after or the week after that. Absolutely. And it's, yeah. and even if someone doesn't agree that it's uh, rewatchable, I think you would be hard to disagree that it's memorable. Like it leaves a profound lasting impression on you. Uh, and that goes back to the story and the color and the way that it, the style of it, it's very, uh, you know, it's very blue, like a lot of blues and purples. And, you know, it has a very distinctive look to it that 
combined with you know some of the uh, the story elements and the beach and the final the final scene uh, is going to stick with you for a very long time. So that it, if you've only seen it once and it's been three years, which was it for me, it didn't feel like it, it's been three years since I watched it. It felt like, you know, I just watched it the last week because of how yeah. strong of an impression this thing leaves. Um, I could still feel my heart breaking, you know, uh, three years later. And it's, yeah, an incredible film. Completely agree with everything you just said. 10 out of 10. Yes. A, a must watch for sure. Yeah. Nice. So what are, what are we doing next week? Um, so, yeah, uh, actually, before we get to that, what are you going to recommend this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend a book, which I don't do very often, but it's a short it's a short book, but it's really, really well written and it's beautifully written. Um, and and just, yeah, I don't know, it's, it's gorgeous. It's the first book I've read in a while. So uh, it's called The Things We Carried, The Things They Carried. Um, it's by Tim O'Brien. He's a Vietnam vet who wrote about his experience there. So, um, and it, it's gotten some back, it got some backlash when it came out. Um, and it's banned in some places and stuff, but it's very, it's just really beautiful and brutal at times, but at the same time, just, you know, it's amazing how words can actually paint a beautiful picture of a terrible experience or a terrible place. So you have this love for the story, but are very, um, just destroyed by it at the same time. And he does an amazing job at it. It's one of my wife's favorite books and she, she let me read it and uh, it's fantastic. Dude, uh, yeah. nice. The things they carried. Are you starting to do more reading? Starting to. Yeah. Yeah. When I can right now, I'm doing a lot of writing, um, trying to get some stuff in a, in a library. Um, and so some of the, the submission deadlines coming up. So just doing a lot of like musical writing. Um, but in between that, I'm trying to read more Dude, that yeah. and watching movies. Yeah, right. <laughs> Naturally. Nice. Um, I'm yeah. going to recommend a, if, if you want more content like Moonlight and you're like, I just don't know where it's at or what to find. Uh, there's another film called Beach Rats. Now it's not the same caliber as a Moonlight just because that's one of the best movies of the last 10 years. And so lower your expectations, people. Uh, <laughs> but Beach Rats is still really good and it's still complicated and uh, dealing with some really difficult subject matter. And if you're looking for something that's moody, maybe has uh, similar stylings and similar complexity, uh, but with just a different, you know, cast of characters, then I think that's worth checking out. It's uh, streaming at the moment on Hulu, but solid, really, really good and thoughtful for sure. Nice. So beautiful. Don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes. Oh, uh, next week we are going <laughs> to do uh, Steve Jobs. If you haven't seen the Danny Boyle film starring Michael Fassbender, then I think it's streaming on Netflix right now. Uh, so go check that out. We're going to cover it next week. Yeah. And don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And like Todd said a minute ago, uh, if there's something you want us to cover, uh, give us a shout. Like we're going to be doing so many films. Uh, we're back on schedule. I know we were kind of hit or miss uh, recently, but uh, we're, we're getting a backlog going. And so don't be afraid to uh, give us a shout and say, and all the better if you do it through a review. If you leave us a review saying, hey, I want you to cover whatever, then do that. We will 
99% chance we'll cover it um, if, if you do it in a review. So that stuff is actually really well, much appreciated. Um, and if you want to leave a comment on this episode, uh, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash moonlight. And our quote of the day is from Oscar Wilde from The Picture of Dorian Gray. Behind every exquisite thing that existed, there was something tragic. It's just, yeah, it's beautiful. It's like perfect. Um, I mean, there's no, everything comes from something. And, and a lot of times inspiration comes from tragic things. I mean, what else can you do but try to make something, try to make something out of something terrible? Right. Absolutely. I mean, this story, Moonlight, came out of uh, Terrell Alvin's um, experience in in Liberty City, like in in Miami. Um, and it's not a hundred percent his story, but you know, a lot of it's in there. He wrote it, and this is where it's it's this Moonlight is a bit tricky because this wasn't a script. He didn't necessarily write a script. He didn't. And it's usually labeled as a play, which this was not a play. Um, it wasn't exactly a screenplay either. It was written similar to a screenplay, uh, but it was never published. Like I still don't understand how Barry Jenkins came across this story, but what's amazing about it is they both grew up in the same neighborhood, but they didn't know each other. Like Barry Jenkins came across the story and was like, wow, and he's not uh, gay, but he identified and thought the story was incredibly moving. And he's like, this is a story I have to tell. And so he took what Terrell McCraney wrote and, you know, adapted it to a screenplay and out came, you know, Moonlight. Uh, and Terrell McCraney was asked, like, are you ever going to, you know, write this uh publish your your original version he's like no i have no plans to ever do that like i think moonlight kind of covers it you know really well and so it's personal and i think i've used hemingway a couple times on here writing is easy you you sit down and you bleed all over the page and i love oscar wilde for this quote because he wrote you know over a century ago and uh, it's a poorly kept secret that he was gay, but he wasn't allowed to live out his life because he was gay. And, you know, the late 1890s and uh, the late 1800s. And that had devastating consequences for his life. Uh, I read the picture of Dorian Gray and was just blown away by it. And, you know, a note in there is that the that book was used uh, partly as evidence against him in a trial about sodomy. Like he was accused and ultimately he was imprisoned and he got out and he was homeless and he ended up, you know, dying uh, and largely because of who he was, not because of something evil or bad that he did, but because of who he was, uh, he was persecuted. And uh, ultimately, you know, I believe it cost him his life. And so I'm, I'm glad that we can watch a movie like Moonlight and see these experiences because there's so many more of these stories that are, are worth hearing and worth being told. And I'm you know very grateful to both Barry Jenkins and uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney uh, for having the, the courage to tell this story. 100%. It's, it's, yeah, it's a great quote. Um, he's an incredible writer. The movie was incredible. It's a, if you have a story, tell it. Not if not, I mean, tell it for yourself for sure, but tell it for other people too. If you think that there might be others that are either struggling with something or, or just if you want to tell a story, like I, in all honesty, I have a pretty vanilla life. Uh, I have most of my life, but I have a story too. 
And there, and the cool thing is, is that there are aspects of your story that can be the story. It doesn't have to be that you're you're a gay black boy growing up in in the middle of a of a you know very rough neighborhood. Like it, that doesn't have to be your story. Um, it can be some other thing, and it can be a a specific nuance of a story that is your story. So just tell it. You know, tell it. You're not. It's the, the the richest place on earth is a graveyard. So just get it out there, put it out there or else no one will ever see it or hear it or it won't touch the world. So anyway, this has been fun. Thank you so much, Wes, for all of your insight. I've, I've just enjoyed listening. I just sat back and I listened to, to most of this because I, I feel like you had so many great points on the directing and storytelling and the cinematography. So thank you for that. And guys, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed it myself. Make sure you join us next week. We'll be doing Steve Jobs. Watch it on Netflix because it's it's rewatch. Make sure to watch it before we uh, before we do the episode. Until then, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.